You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I was delighted to hear my client was still packing and told her as much. She chewed at the corner of a fingernail and looked at herself in the bar mirror. It took her a while to get sick of that. Then she finished off numbers six and seven. Not a bother. Point is, Mr. Kelly, I can handle that end of it. For what it was worth, across a drift of smoke and chatter, she fit the part, at least on this night, in a warm bar where talk was talk and not a matter of consequence. Michael Harvey is the co-creator of the television show Cold Case Files on Arts and Entertainment Network. His first novel is The Chicago Way. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you for uh, having me here. Mike, your background, you combined some, a couple of really unusual uh, disciplines, mm-hmm. law and journalism. Yep. Which came first, why, which came second, and why? Uh, you know what? Law came first. Actually, what came first was a, a bachelor's degree in classical languages in Latin and Greek. And to go back even further, I, I started taking Latin in the seventh grade at Boston Latin School. Uh, I grew up in Boston. And uh, Boston Latin School is the oldest school in the country. It was founded in 1635. And um, actually, Harvard was founded in 1636, so the kids from Latin school would have somewhere to go. I always like to tell that for all the Harvard grads out there. But you start, you start in the seventh grade, and you have to take Latin, and then you pick up. I picked up ancient Greek my sophomore year in high school. And so then I, I, I loved them so much that I decided to go to Holy Cross and majored in classical languages. And I tell you all that because the classical languages background makes it into the book. And then after graduating from Holy Cross, I decided, well, I don't think I want to teach classical languages, so I better find something that's somewhat useful to do. So I went to uh, Duke University Law School, got my law degree, and really enjoyed studying law. When I graduated, I I went out to Chicago and got a job with a big law firm in the city. Loved the city, loved the people in the firm, hated the practice of law. Just really found it, um, I don't know, a a little... uh, Stultifying, I guess is the word I'm looking for. I mean, it was it was just a little boring, and I just didn't have the passion for it. And I wanted to spend my career doing something I was very passionate about. So uh, after a couple years in a law firm in Chicago, I decided that I wanted to go back and try something else. And I wanted to write. And I didn't feel at that point that, you know, 26 years old, that I was just ready to write the great American novel. And uh, probably still not ready to write the great American novel. But I felt like I wanted to write, but I wanted to see more of the world as well. And the thought of being a journalist seemed like a really great combination. So I, uh, I went to Northwestern, to Medill School of Journalism, got my master's in journalism, and then was very fortunate to just get a job right out of Medill uh, at CBS in Chicago, working as an investigative producer. And I was able to uh, combine writing with uh, running around the city and digging up all kinds of uh, secrets and all, all kinds of great stories that I, that I got to cover there. And this would be the city of Chicago, right? This would be the city of Chicago, yeah. Which features heavily in your new book. Yes. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your uh, show, Cold Case Files. Mm -hmm. You've done some other work, your investigative work. What led you to create this show at a time when the concerns of this show were not really of great interest to anybody, perhaps, Mm -hmm. but you? Well, yeah, that's 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 a good way to put it. Uh, I was seeing things because I was sort of out there on the cutting edge of what was going on in uh, in the criminal investigation field. This is 1996, 97. I was constantly doing uh, investigative documentaries with Bill Curtis for investigative reports, among other projects that I was working on. And I was just seeing uh, 
time and time again, as we as we did different kinds of stories, that DNA and forensics and science and technology were changing the face of criminal investigation and the way cops caught killers and caught rapists and just the way they did their job in ways that people just couldn't fathom. And that they were bringing in all kinds of disciplines, not just science, but psychology and, uh, and, and geographic profiles and all of these different tools were coming into, uh, you know, to the cop shop and really making it quite a different exercise than what people traditionally believed. And uh, I knew they had some inkling of it with OJ, but they didn't really understand, I thought, what was going on. And what I looked at it as is a great storytelling opportunity. Uh, what a great way. People are always fascinated with crime anyways. And, the, and, and bringing all these other disciplines into it, what a great way to, uh, to tell a story and tell the anatomy, for example, of a homicide investigation. And the last element to Cold Case Files was the fact that with all this new technology, they were able to take old cases, 10, 15, 20 years old that have been sitting on the shelf, take them off the shelf, open up the box of evidence, and take a fresh look at this evidence and actually catch people, catch killers who thought they had escaped with, had gotten away with this crime for more than a decade just by looking at old evidence and using new technology. And the more I thought about it, the more we talked about it, uh, I remember kicking around with Bill in Chicago, and we just thought, wow, this is great. It's, it's kind of a modern whodunit with so many different angles and so many different ways to tell the story. Uh, we just thought it would be great. And we did one hour, and it was just a, a kind of a smash hit. And it just took off after that. I never thought it would make its way into popular culture the way it did with CSI and Cold Case and all of the things that have come since then. But, but it has. I mean, I, I speak at, at high schools and colleges where all the kids, they don't want to be astronauts anymore. They want to be forensic scientists. They want to do you know, that kind of work which is uh, kind of stunning to me, but, um, but, but it's a lot of fun. Could you talk about your experience watching science make its way into law enforcement? And, and tell us, how did this, did this uh, shift from mm-hmm. the kind of footwork investigation and the human-based investigation, the interrogation-based inve- investigation, mm-hmm. go to science? Did they like that? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a good way to put it. That they like it. Uh, a lot of a lot of them didn't like it at first. It's been sort of a generational shift. The cops' job has changed quite a bit, even in the last five to ten years. I mean, they are so much better prepared now when they go into a crime scene than they have ever been before. And it really started in '96, '97. First, you had problems with the with the DNA labs that had to get straightened out. Everybody is now licensed, and they have kind of like a uniform set of standards that are put out by the FBI to make sure the science that is done in the lab is, is pretty much bulletproof. And then it had to make its way into the crime scene. And now you have cops that are pseudoscientists because they have to be. So there's no more of the cops sitting around a crime scene smoking a cigarette and putting it on, and put it on the ground and, and stamping it out. They, it just doesn't happen anymore. Everybody wears gloves. Everyone wears, everyone wears booties. Everyone is deathly afraid of leaving their DNA at a crime scene and showing up on someone's report as having left their DNA there. So there's some self-interest involved, but also they know the power of this evidence, and they know that if they mess it up, um, they're going to really mess up the case, and they know if they get it right, they could, have a, they could make a very powerful case. So they really look at these crime scenes almost as scientists. And they are also very adept now and, and very open to bringing other, other disciplines into the crime scene. Whereas before, you know, you had the old grizzle cop say, it's my crime scene and that's it. No one else is getting in. It's my case. Not like that anymore. Now they will, they're, they're happy to bring in forensic anthropologists who will do face reconstruction, happy to bring in uh, um, people with laser lights and laser fingerprinting and all of these different technologies and disciplines because, A, they understand them, and, B, they understand how, how powerful they can be and how much they can help them uh, solve the case. 
as a storytelling device, it, this really reminds me of the shift that took place, uh, you know, around 100 years ago with Sherlock Holmes and the fingerprint. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, that that's actually pretty good, except it's, it, it's um, it, like with everything else, it's accelerated. Uh, it's on a dimension and an order that is, is far greater than the fingerprint. I mean, in terms of how they looked at crimes then versus how we look at them was probably just as big of a change. But when you look at the changes that are going on now and the power, for example, of, um, of DNA and of genetic evidence to almost like the hand of God, God step, sit down and come down and just touch someone on the shoulder and say, you're guilty or you're innocent. The power to um, make a case or to exculpate is just phenomenal. And it's, it's pretty much, in, in some cases, if the evidence is right, it, it's pretty much unprecedented, the power it has. It doesn't replace a jury, but in some cases, if the DNA evidence is powerful enough, it's pretty much lights out. I mean, there's not much more that needs to be done uh, in the case. Now, that's not always, that, that doesn't usually happen. Usually, you do have to build a whole case around a piece of DNA evidence, but the DNA evidence is very powerful, and it's, it's a type of evidence that I don't think we've ever had before in the criminal justice system for its power for good and its power for bad. One thing that strikes me, as I have to admit that as I've been watching these shows and and, and reading books that, that involve DNA evidence, I myself start to be very hesitant about leaving my own DNA anywhere. And I'm wondering if you think the implications of this are, you know, you're not going to want to leave a stray hair somewhere because somebody could grab that stray hair and place it at a crime scene. Yeah. Well, you're giving me great ideas for... Uh... For, for another novel. Um, yeah, sure. Yes, the, the potential for a frame is there. I think you need the rest of the case, though. Like I said, DNA can be very powerful, but can only be one piece of a case. If the rest of it doesn't fit, it, it may fall apart. But yeah, you definitely have those those kinds of, uh, uh, of situations. I mean, where you get some kind of crazy circumstances with DNA. I will, um, I'll, I'll share the story with you and uh, see what you think of it. The one case that always comes to mind with DNA is this this, uh, this guy was in jail in Milwaukee, and he's in jail for uh, three or four different rapes, all of which was he was linked to through DNA. And I can't remember whether he was... I know he's arrested and he's in jail. I don't know whether he was uh, convicted on some of them or he was awaiting trial. But anyways, he's in jail. And um, a fifth woman comes into an emergency room in Milwaukee having been raped. They do a rape kit. They take a sample. And um, they find semen, and they find out, and, and, they, and they run it, and it's a perfect genetic match to this guy who's in jail, okay? And he's definitely been in jail. He's been in jail for a while. And so they're, they're just running around like crazy. His, his defense attorney files motions to uh, vacate all of the other cases, saying either he's got the one in nine million uh, perfect genetic match running around out there in, in, in Milwaukee raping women, or, and he didn't have an identical twin, so it couldn't have been that, or the science is just flawed. And the science is bad, and all these cases have to go. And the cop and the prosecutor, uh, whom I happen to know, were just scratching their heads and like, what, what's going on here? And they get the woman, um, who, who uh, the fifth victim, in a room, and they start talking to her. And it turns out that this guy had masturbated into a package of mustard, mailed it out of the jail to this woman, and told her to, you know, basically, for lack of a better word, insert it in herself, go to the, uh, to the emergency room, and uh, claim she was raped. And he paid her $50. And she did, and and it didn't work, but it gets it shows you the kind of crazy things that people will do to beat a DNA or to try to beat a DNA case. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that that I found really fascinating is the 
the way you use a film noir and, and written noir to inform your cold case files work. And this seems a somewhat of a natural joining uh, just because of the the grittiness of the noir world. It seems like a good match for, for nonfiction. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think uh, you're talking about the book or the, or the cold case files. The cold case files, yeah, the, the TV show. Yeah, um, that's what we tried to do. Was you know, we were looking for ways to tell the story, but to tell it in a way. What you want to do is inform and entertain as well. Now, when you mm-hmm. do documentaries, it's not enough to just kind of do a straight documentary. You really have to have to have an angle, and you have to have a storytelling angle. And um, and you and we wanted to have a certain style that we thought would fit the material. And I knew the material inside and out, and I knew. Uh, that the film noir style would just be perfect, and and we all loved it. I remember us, I remember us all sitting around the room and uh, kind of thinking about this and thinking of different ways to shoot it, with uh, losing a lot of shadowing and modeling of, of people, and uh, and in great ways of, of of putting the evidence out and and displaying it in a way that that would would uh, enhance that effect. And we just thought it would be a perfect match, and it turned out to be um, really good, and also played into the way I wanted to write because I wanted to write it in that way as well. So I have my own selfish reasons for doing that. But it all just kind of worked that way, and uh, and it turned out to be a great match. And because we weren't using, you know, we don't use actors and recreations and cold case files, it's all the real evidence. We needed some way to sort of make this evidence appear a, l- a bit more glamorous than just putting it out on a table with natural light and just shooting it. So th- that was what we came up with, and, and I think it worked pretty well. I think it gave the, the, the pieces a little bit of attitude. It drew people in. What, what I always wanted to do was draw people in, get them hooked on the story, and then start feeding them the information they needed to know about uh, anything else that may, that may have occurred during the investigation. So you're writing and producing mm-hmm. cold case files. That's got to be a pretty good gig. You're yeah, getting a, a lot gig. of a glance. Great gig, great gig. And, and, and you're probably not hurting financially. So... Mm-hmm. W- what led you to decide to write a novel? When did you make that first make that decision to go from journalism to writing a novel? Well, you know, actually, I had this. I had about fifty pages of this. Like a lot of people, I had about fifty pages of of this sitting in a drawer for about two years. Uh, the first fifty pages of Chicago Way, or roughly, uh, and it was just sitting there. And I'd written it. I don't know why I wrote. It. I just kind of wrote it on a whim. It was in my head, and I just started writing it. I thought it would be kind of fun. With this, I love this style, and I was just kind of messing around, really. And I, but I had it sitting there. And um, last spring, I, um, I was actually home in Boston, and I was talking to my parents. And um, my mom was actually giving me a hard time. You know, how moms can be. She's like, you know, what, what are you gonna do with that thing? You know, you got fifty pages. Because she'd read it. She's like, oh, it's, it's good. Um, she's like, why don't you just go ahead and do it, man? And so, you know, I was like, okay, mom, whatever. And then I got back, and it kind of bothered me, and it, and it bothers me. When you don't finish, I, I don't like starting things and not finishing them. Also, that's a bad habit to get into. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull this thing out. I pulled it out. I was like, okay, let's let's get into this. And I just decided I was gonna do it over the summer. And I met a, um, I, I made a connection with a woman named Garner Kilberg Cohen, who is a, a Chicago writer and she's a professor at Columbia College in Chicago. And I sat down with her, and she read the 50 pages, and she's like, this is pretty good. Where's the rest? And I said, well, there is no rest. So she gave me two things. She gave me sort of an editorial focus, and she opened up her calendar book and gave me a deadline. And she said, okay, by the end of the summer, your book is going to be done. And that was a big moment because I was like, well, really, all I have to do is stay alive between now and the end of the summer, and my book's going to be done. And uh, as bizarre as that sounded, that was like really great to me. So I was like, okay, cool. All I really have to do is just kind of somehow survive, and somehow this book will magically get done. And what it did was, I guess it just quieted all the other voices in my head. And I just said, 
okay, you know, this is it. For three months or four months, I'm just going to do this. And every spare moment I had when I wasn't doing cold case files, I was just writing. And the pages began to add up. The story kind of took hold in my mind. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have an outline. I had some vague ideas of where I wanted to go. But really, the story just started to take hold in my mind as I wrote it. And, you know, I'd be walking down the street and I'd be like, oh, you know, I've got to run to somewhere and write this down because pieces of the story come to you at the, at the strangest times. And then by the end of the summer, by uh, Labor Day of last year, I had it done. And I remember the first time I read it through from beginning to end. And um, I stopped thinking of it as mine. I started thinking of it as, 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 as a novel uh, at some point there and, and really was interested in it, even though I knew it was going to happen. Uh, and that was when I thought, wow, you know, maybe other people would actually like to read this. So uh, it, it was kind of cool. I'm wondering, had you written fiction before in in college or or in high school, or had had that the call of fiction had fiction ever called to you before? Um, well, I I never no, I had never written. The answer is no. I, I hadn't written fiction before. I had thought about it, and when I had left, uh, when I decided I was going to leave to practice the law. Okay, I I was thinking about going to like University of Iowa Writers Workshop and all of these other things to write fiction. Uh, at the time, so I had I had the interest certainly. But at the time, I didn't think, again, at 26, that I really had enough to talk about, to write about. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Go sit up in a room somewhere and write my life story? I haven't lived enough. I haven't seen enough. I need to see more things. So that's why I decided to take writing in journalism and go out there and, and, and try and see some interesting things in the world. But in my back of my mind, I thought, I'll return to fiction someday. But maybe I'll return with a few more things to talk about. And, uh, and that's kind of what happened. Could you talk about the influence of your television work? If you're making cold case files mm-hmm. while you're writing this novel, yeah. it's and every spare second, that's got to have a powerful influence. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's an old saying, you write what you know. And uh, certainly uh, the my experiences in cold case files and invest in all the documentary work that I've done, uh, also as a reporter in Chicago, and uh, all of that stuff influenced this book you know, dramatically. It's uh, certainly in the atmospherics of the book. You know, I understand the rhythm of the language between cops and prosecutors. I, I, I've sat down with killers and talked to them. I know how they work. I know how they think. I know how they talk. I know what it looks like inside a big-time uh, lockup. I know what um, it looks inside a, an interrogation room. I know what a crime scene looks like. I know how c- cops pick up a, a homicide file and how they work through all of this material. So I think all of that helps me fall into the storyline and fall into the voice of Michael Kelly and all the characters in the book very, very easily. Uh, could I have written it without having that experience? Maybe. But I, I never would have really known if it was authentic. Now I know it's authentic because I, I've lived it. You know, despite the fact that I knew you worked on cold case files on in this book, as I read it, I didn't think this is a book by somebody who's done a bunch of cold case files. I said, I thought this is a book by somebody who loves absolutely classic, stripped to the bones, mystery writing. Right. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, my, my idea, as much of a plan as I had, was that I wanted to write it in the old style. I could have written it in, in, in a much more modern style, but I wanted to write it in the stripped to the bone, clean prose of uh, Chandler and Hammett. And I certainly can't even approach those guys because they... There's some of the, you know, they're uniquely American voices and they're great writers. And I won't, but I wanted to do a little bit of an homage to them in terms of the style that I used because I love that style and I think it's a great style. And I think it fits perfectly with these kinds of stories. And I wanted to fuse that with um, all of the modern uh, homicide and, and criminal investigative techniques that I had been exposed to, all of the CSI stuff 
that I had been exposed to um, in my work in cold case files. So it was kind of taking that classic style and hopefully fusing it together with this uh, modern overlay of what's going on in, in, in uh, criminal investigative work now and, 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 and providing maybe a kind of a unique touch on that. I think one thing you're quite successful at is at incorporating the CSI stuff, but it really doesn't feel like it's being showboated. It, it, it's very much just a part of the, of the atmosphere. And I wonder if you talk care to talk about creating that kind of atmosphere that's it's your book's kind of laid back in a way, and which is in an enjoyable way. It's not in your face. Well, you know why? Because that's how it is in real life. I mean, in real life, uh, it's not nearly as dramatic as they make it. For example, on CSI, and yet underlying the fact that it isn't that it isn't in your face doesn't mean that there isn't great tension there, and doesn't mean that there isn't a lot going on. It's just that this is their job. Okay, this is the cop's job. This is the forensic person's job, and they do their job. In doing their job, the fact that they're dealing with a scene that might be a, a gruesome homicide scene or a very dramatic moment, uh, I think the reality of how they deal with it perhaps underlines the fact that, in, in, in a strange way, it underlines the drama of the moment even more than trying to introduce it with a lot of trumpets and a lot of, um, of maybe unnecessary frills. Because the power is there. The power of these moments, hopefully, in what I write, is is there, and you don't need. To uh, to take a lot of to, to put a lot of bows and ribbons on it, let it just be there, and let the audience um, or, or the readership absorb it, and 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 give them some credit for understanding what you're trying to do, and that you're really trying to take them into, even though it's fiction, into some authentic moments of how cops actually work, and how crime scenes actually look, and how victims actually uh, hurt and bleed and feel, and 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 I didn't feel like I, I felt like I really wanted to allow that to come through without me sort of getting in the way with a lot of unnecessary words. There's a kind of a, a, a style of mystery that's very popular and sells very well that does focus a lot on, on these kind of CSI details. Mm -hmm. and But it's also very bloody. And there's a lot of uh, – it's almost more horror fiction than, than mystery fiction. It's still suspenseful, but the focus is not on who done it so much as how terrorized can you make the reader. And I wonder if you – this is not that kind of book. Mm -hmm. This is – I wonder if you talk, care to talk about how you managed to write about the, the gritty details without, like, nauseating the reader. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I guess I, I don't really have a good answer to that. I, I just think that I um, – my, my main thing was just to be real to the story, be true to the story. And, and uh, in real life, we don't spend – when I'm at crime scenes or, or I'm there with cops and uh, forensic people, they don't spend a lot of time going over the goriness of, of, of what it is that's in front of them. They know it's gory. It, it touches them. It, it hurts them or um, in some way affects them. But they don't spend a lot of time going over that because, A, they have a job to do, and, B, it's not really um, relevant to what their job is. So, again, just being real to what I felt was a storyline, I didn't want to portray it that way in the novel. So I was just trying to be real. And in, in, uh, in, in, in real life, I think the cops understand how horrible some of the things are that they have to deal with. They understand it all too well. And so the last thing they want to do is revel in it or, or make a bigger deal out of it than it is. I mean, it's like, this is a job. Let's get through it. And let's try and um, do it with as much dignity to the victim, for example, as we can. Let's talk a bit, little bit about the specifics of your book. You've got an ex-cop, Mike Kelly. A very nice, hard-boiled voice, uh, an Irish cop, and uh, 
he, he finds himself being hired by somebody still on the force to go back and look at something that happened before. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's kind of a classic intro to, to, to a... Uh, to a private investigative story, and that's why I chose it because I, I thought it would be kind of fun, and um, you know, it, it's a kind of thing where that happens a lot. Where to me, the, the invest one thing leads to another in investigations in real life. You know, someone comes into your office and and, and tells you one thing, and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll I'll run down this lead and see where it goes, and then you start on on uh, pulling apart the ball of yarn. And, and, and the strings get longer and the strings go off into uh, shadows and corners and places that you could never have imagined. And that's what happens with Kelly. Once he starts uh, uh, unraveling this ball of yarn, well, almost immediately the person that brought him the ball of yarn is killed. And then he's really hooked in it. And then uh, he starts getting involved in, in, in deeper and deeper into circumstances that he, he doesn't fully understand. But um, when faced with whatever he does know, he's going to try and get to the bottom of it, which is basically his credo is, Maybe I don't know how deep the water is here, but I'm going to jump in and I'm going to do the best I can and, and try to get to the other side. You have a, a very classic array of, of characters mm-hmm. in this book. And with, as you mentioned, and I hadn't even really thought about this until now, uh, a modern spin, and in particular Nicole Andrews, who's his uh, a friend, longtime friend, mm-hmm. and, and a DNA expert. Yeah, um... God, you know Nicole is an interesting character because she wasn't she wasn't uh, really in the book until I had probably written over two hundred pages. And <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Which is which is hard to believe when you read the book. I, I know, yeah. but that's kind of the way the creative process works for me. Uh, I I knew I needed some. I don't want to give away too much in the book for people who haven't read it, but I knew I needed somebody that my uh, protagonist Michael Kelly could go to to get some DNA testing done, sort of on the sly. And uh, so we needed a contact inside the. Uh, the um, Illinois Forensic Science Center. And so I knew, and I thought, okay, who's this going to be? Well, maybe it should be a friend. And then once I decided that he was going to use a friend, a, a, an old friend as a contact, you begin to think, okay, what's their backstory? Are they, are they um, if it's a woman, was there a romance? Is it an old girlfriend? Is it just an old friend? Or is it, it has to be someone who's a pretty good friend if they're going to do this big favor for him. And as I began to create the backstory, I began to realize, well, maybe Nicole's a friend from childhood. And first of all, it's a woman. And second, it's a, it's a friend from childhood. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, what, what is it that binds them together? And I thought that some of the larger issues in the book could be woven into this backstory between uh, Michael Kelly and Nicole. And, and what binds them together is sexual assault. And I don't want to give away too much of the book, but uh, the backstory then tied into some of the larger themes in the book that I was already developing. And then I'm like, wow, you know, I have an ability here. I have an opportunity to um, create a great backstory for Kelly, fill in some of his childhood, make a compelling character in, in Nicole Andrews, and help Nicole reveal more character in Kelly through eventually what happens with her. Uh, and so it all kind of came together about 200 pages into the book as I'm just trying to figure out how he's going to, who this person is and why she's doing this favor for him. And then I went back to the beginning and, and wrote her into the beginning of the book as sort of part of his backstory. And that's that's often how it works. Minor characters become major characters as you begin to figure out your story. Another major character, and I'm sure you knew this from the get-go in this book, is Chicago. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Early on, the uh, Mike says, it's, it's a landscape I know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and could you talk about creating Chicago and the way you create Chicago? There's some really great places here that, as a reader, I really wanted to go to Mr. Beef. <laughs> <laughs> you should go to Mr. Beef. 
yes, you know, I love books where I can where I've either been to the city or the place or or I want to go after I finish reading the book. And uh and I wanted to create that sort of feel with Chicago where people who have been there may be like, "Hey, you know what? I've been down that street or I've been right by that coffee shop and uh and maybe next time I'll go in." Or or I I know that block. And and people that haven't been there feel like they want to go there when they finish the book. That's that's what I, I that's the effect I was looking for and I wanted to bring Chicago to life in that way, in a very local way, but in a way that um became almost a character in the book and 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 try to bring the city to life that way. And I, it's a great city. I love it. I mean, I've lived there um since I got out of college and um it worked pretty well. And and it helps as your first novel writing about in the old adage of write what you know. That's exactly right. I mean, I would put, you know, a lot of this book I wrote in 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 a coffee shop called Intelligentsia, which is in the book, and uh, you know, I would I would look out the window and see people walking. Oh, you're in the book, you know, and then boom, then they go. I mean, you know, it's it really is as simple as that. Sometimes uh, you you find things all over the place. I, I think one of the interesting things when you um, begin this process of writing novels is everything becomes fodder for <laughs> for the novel. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you look at the world with a different pair of glasses on where you would look and just see nothing. All of a sudden, like, oh, you know, look at that. That woman's dressed kind of strange. Let's put that, you know. And um, and, and little bits and pieces of, of reality come become characters in the book, and it's kind of fun. I was interested in lots of the the arcana of Chicago. You have a bar that your characters go to. Yeah. Yeah. The bar is my bar. I own it with a couple of buddies of mine from college called Hidden Shamrock. And uh it's it's in it's in the Lincoln Park area of Chicago. It's a lot of fun. And again, I know the bar well and so I said, why not put it in there? And it, it was a lot of fun and uh everybody there is getting a big kick out of it because uh they're reading the book now and they're like, Wow, I know that, I know that. And of course, we have the the famous or more infamous Chicago political machine and the Chicago mob. Mm-hmm. There's a, sensibly a difference. I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the second book is called The Fifth Floor, and uh, I'm I'm almost done with the second book, and it'll be out in in the fall of 2008. But it's called The Fifth Floor, and the Fifth Floor, if you know Chicago downtown and City Hall, the mayor works on the fifth floor. So if you're going to the fifth floor, you're going to see the mayor, and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. But in the second book, there's a lot more politics, and Michael Kelly gets himself entangled with the mayor and with political operatives downtown, and um, it has uh, dire consequences for Mr. Kelly. But uh, but he he manages to deal with them. But it's it, it's basically sort of a, a look at the political uh, machinations of Chicago. It also has a little bit about the Great Fire, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, uh, which is also sort of an underpinning of the book. Did you get any blowback by using? All this authentic locality? No, not really. Um, no, most people like it. Most people live in the city like it. I think they're uh, they're kind of amused by it uh, because to them it's just a neighborhood, for example. But uh, I think they think it's kind of fun. So, as a first novel, I, I know there's a tendency to want to essentially write about the entire of human history. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> a problem, <laughs> which is often a, a problem. Uh, you do a remarkably good job at keeping the scale small, so it's very appealing. We don't feel like we're meeting the greatest policeman ever made or the seeing the greatest evil ever perpetrated, and that makes it more appealing. Well, uh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, again, I, I just want to keep it real. I want to keep it life size. I don't want to. I don't want a book that's larger than life. I want you to feel like you know Michael Kelly and all the characters in the book, and that. 
um, you know them like you would know a friend, and uh, they're not perfect. They're not. They're not large in life. They're not. They're not all good or all evil. Um, they do the best they can, and they make the decisions they make, and they live with them. And the one thing I want Michael Kelly to do is to own his decisions. And uh, you know, whatever he does, right or wrong, he owns it, and 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 he deals with the consequences of it. And I think that's a good thing to have in a friend or a person in, in your own life. And and that was the one thing that I wanted. But other than that, it's just keep it small, keep it real, and. Um, and keep it interesting, uh, because a, again, you're dealing with enough stuff here that um, that is dramatic enough. It doesn't need it doesn't need a lot of me getting in the way, frankly, of the story with a lot of bells and whistles. I, I really think you cut the prose clean, you you sharpen it up, and uh, and you let it just roll. Let's talk about prose and how you wrote it, and mm-hmm. essentially how you wrote the book, because I, I'm getting that this wasn't just sit down, write cover to cover, perfect first time. Hand it in. I'm done, teacher. No, no, it, it's never like that. I mean, you don't write. I don't write chrono, uh, sequentially. I, I, and I'm all over the place. I might be writing page one one day. I might be writing page three hundred another day because it just sort of comes to you at different in, in chunks. To me, anyways. I mean, I guess everybody's different, but for me, it's um, you know, you may be tapping along and 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 and, and do ten pages a day, and um, you may think, oh, this is th- these ten pages are good, but I have no idea where they go. Uh, and then you leave, and you may be driving down the street. You may be taking a run along the lake. You may be doing something else, and all of a sudden, boom! It hits you like you know, like a hammer over the head. Wow! You know what? That's where those ten pages are going. That's what that character is supposed to do. This character is supposed to meet that character. And sometimes whole pages of dialogue and will come into my head um, while I'm doing something else. And I'm like, oh my gosh! And you got to run to find a pen and paper or a computer, or whatever you can find, and get that stuff down because you'll 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 lose it. But uh, I think that the subconscious mind chews away at this stuff, even when you're not actually in the process of writing, and then it comes forth unbidden. And and I just let the characters walk out on the page, and they just go, and I let them take me where they're going to go. The theme, one of the major themes of this book, it's about the crime of rape, mm-hmm. and you do a good job of writing about a crime that that's particularly horrific without dwelling on the horror but without soft peddling it either Mm -hmm. how did you is that a decision you made specifically yourself and how did you uh roll that out onto the page well again you know i i I try to write with restraint because i don't think that a lot of the stuff needs to be glorified anymore and the power is already there in the material so I, I really do try to write with restraint because I think that when you write with restraint, um, you give the audience the credit that they deserve um, in terms of understanding what it is you're trying to say without banging them over the head with it. And so in terms of writing, that's what I try to do throughout, including uh, dealing with the issue of sexual assault. The issue itself was interesting to me because I've interviewed a lot of women who have been raped. I've interviewed a lot of rapists. I've interviewed a lot of cops and prosecutors that have handled these cases. And I don't think that we fully understand the crime or... Um, spend enough time thinking about it. Uh, as I, I, th- I think I said in the book, that um, a, a, a sexual assault is a lot like the homicide, except the victim's still alive. And sometimes that's the worst part. Because um, a lot of times, a lot of women that I've talked to have had real problems after they've been raped. Even five, five minutes later, five months later, five years later, some of them are still afraid to go outside. Some of them have uh, ruined their families. Um, 
And some of them, it's been the most empowering thing that's ever happened to them. So it's kind of all over the place in terms of the ways, the ways that women react to being sexually assaulted. But the fact is that as a society, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. We spend more time thinking about the rapists and how they're getting caught. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the aftercare that sexual assault victims need throughout their life. We also don't spend a lot of time thinking about the stacks and stacks of DNA rape kits that I see um, stacked up in evidence lockers in California or all over the country. Uh, there are tens of thousands of rape kits that need to be tested. And if we did test them, we would find rapists and killers. And we would find people who are actively committing these crimes right now, not just giving an answer to some woman who was maybe assaulted years ago, but also catching someone who's doing it right now. And the problem is we don't have enough money, we don't have enough resources to handle that. Um, but it's one of the issues that I wanted to introduce into the book. And the trick is to not get up on your soapbox and, uh, and talk about it too much and yet bring it up where you can in the context and in the flow of the story. And, and that's kind of what I tried to do. Did you feel any trepidation? You're a man writing about rape, mm -hmm. so did that give you pause to think? Mm -hmm. um, not really. I, I, I think, first of all, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a crime against a human being. And I think uh, any human being who's concerned about it should be concerned about it. And if they want to talk about it or write about it, I think that's fine. Um, this, the book itself is not written from the viewpoint of a woman. Uh, I don't think there'll be anything wrong with that, but I, I wrote it from the viewpoint of a man um, who is reacting to the crime, and, 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 and which is very similar to my viewpoint. I also know a lot about this crime. I probably know a lot about more about this crime than just about anybody except for the cops themselves who were investigated or a woman who's actually been assaulted. Um, beyond those two groups of people, I know a lot because I've interviewed a lot of women who have been sexually assaulted, and I've seen a lot. And so um, I feel like there, there are things there that, uh, that I can talk about, and no, I don't have any problem talking about them. And I would presume you know a lot because rape is a case is a is a crime that is extremely well suited for a cold case yeah. uh, file. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because of DNA, and uh, and the thing with rape is that you know it's a very complex crime. Okay, uh, the woman we always think of the woman who gets you know attacked in an alley, for example, uh, but that's a small number of rapes. I mean. That crime is very different than the 10-year-old who gets raped by her uncle. That's very different than the woman who gets raped by her husband in the context of a 20-year marriage. Very different than the woman who gets raped as a sophomore in college on a date. And yet we call them all rape. And they're all very, very different crimes, very, very different kinds of, uh, of uh, perpetrators, very, very different kinds of victims. And, uh, and, and the complexity of the crime and, and the dimensions of the crime, I think, aren't fully understood by society. That's one of the other things that I wanted to try and get into the book so that people can understand um, sort of really how complex this crime is. And also how complex our reactions are to it, because men and women react very differently, not only from each other, but from one another. Everybody has a very different reaction to this crime. Yes. Uh, you know, people say, well, for example, you just asked me, well, should women only talk about rape? And I mean, I, 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 I kind of reject, I, I definitely reject that. But because then you could say, well, only women who have been raped should talk about rape. Because what do women who haven't been raped know about, about being raped? And, um, and, and again, I reject that as well. Um, but I think that um, everybody has a different viewpoint on it depending on their life experience. You know? And a lot, of the, a lot of the views, I think, go unstated as to uh, what, what people think about sexual assault. Um, you, know, you have the whole idea of, uh, of date rape, which is, uh, well, 
when when a woman says no, when when does no mean no, and when doesn't it mean no? Which is a very controversial thing. To me, no means no when you say no, but to a lot of people, it's like, well, you know, what kind of girl was she? You know, all of that kind of thing. And that's a whole discussion that people have, or people want to have, but sometimes they don't, just because they're afraid of the politics of it. And um, to me, you know, that's a different crime than a violent stranger on stranger rape. Um, and, and then there are different dynamics to that sort of investigation. And yet, um, again, we call it all sexual assault. And yet rape is not the only crime in this novel. Mm-hmm. And, and I, could you talk a little bit about the one thing I, that I like about this novel, before we go to the next level of crime, I want to talk a little bit about the way you plot it because you do a good job of weighing suspense and excitement with believability. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is my first novel, so that's great to hear. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just... Inst- I, 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 all the decisions I made were very instinctive. I mean, I didn't... I didn't outline anything. I, I, you know, I just had a sense of the story in my head as to what the rhythm of the story should be, and maybe that's from working a lot in uh, in, in TV or or um, thinking very cinematically. I think that the movie that the that the book is kind of like a movie in that it's written very cinematically, and that's probably a reflection of my background as a as a documentary television writer. But um, I just had sort of this idea in my head of what of when to ratchet up the action, when to lay back a little bit, and uh, there was no magic formula to it. It's just sort of I'm going with my instincts. Well, your instincts led you to a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And there's an absolutely chilling and, and uh, very real-seeming uh, interview with a serial killer in this novel. Mm-hmm. How did you create that feeling of, of veracity? Well, I, I, I've been there. I interviewed John Wayne Gacy in 1992, and that's who this is based on. Um, I, I, was, I got the first television, the only on-camera interview he did. Uh, I did with him and, and Walter Jacobson at CBS, but um, I knew Gacy really well. And, uh, and that, that, that scene is the one scene that's taken out of reality. I mean, that's pretty much a lot of it is pretty much the conversation I had with him when he came down to talk about you know the 33 boys he killed uh, back in Chicago in, in the 1970s. And he came down with his paintings, and he came down with um, his, uh, you know, he, he would do these paintings of the seven dwarfs in winter and summer, and Walt Disney was his mentor, and, um, you know, his serial killer stuff. And then he, he, he brought in all of his, uh, he brought in all of his, um, he had two guards with him bringing all of his investigative materials, materials that he collected on 15, 20 years on death row of all the victims. He had a dossier on each of them, and, and I mean, a lot of material. And he claimed it was because he was trying to investigate who actually did it. What he was really doing was reliving the crimes. He wanted to see every detail of every every kid that he killed because that's one way that these guys continue to, quote-unquote, control their victims and um, relive the crimes. And, th- and that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about with these guys is power and control and, and reliving. And uh, that's why they keep the bodies near them as trophies. And all of the investigative material that he brought down were really trophies of what he had done. You said you knew Gacy well. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? Um, you know, after I'll tell you what the the first time I, I my news director brought me in. I had only been a reporter or a producer for about a year, and my my news director brought me in and said, uh, "I want you to bring me the head of John Wayne Gacy," he, which means he wanted me to get an interview with him. I'm like, okay. And uh, and Gacy had had thousands of uh, of of turned down thousands of requests for interviews. 
So I was like, okay, well, this isn't going to happen, but I'll, but I'll try. So I wrote him a letter, and, uh, and about two weeks after I sent the letter, I get a collect call from Menard Correctional Center, which is where Death Row is located in Illinois, and it's Gacy. And it comes into the newsroom, actually. It comes into the news desk. And the woman on the news desk you know, yells across the newsroom, uh, Michael, you have a collect call from John Wayne Gacy. And 50, tur- 50 heads turn to me. And everybody's like, okay, uh, you know, what have you been up to? And so I go across the room and I'm like, oh. And um, everyone's kind of crying around listening to this one-sided conversation. And it was Gacy. And we talked for a while. And, uh, and we continued to talk over a period of months. He would call every now and then. And the initial hook that made him call me back, actually, was the fact that I was a lawyer. And I had mentioned that in, in, in the letter, and he was fascinated with the fact that I was a lawyer because he was, he was obsessed with his own case. Gacy's always, always, always all about Gacy. That's all, that's all he cares about. And so he wanted to talk about his case, and he wanted to talk about uh, whether I thought his habeas corpus position had any chance of getting him off death row. And I, I tell him the truth. I always tell all these guys the truth. And I said, no, it has no chance. But I'll talk to you about the case if you want to talk. So we talked for a couple months about his case. And then over time, we began to talk more about doing an interview because he realized over time that he was never going to, the legal avenue was not going to work for him. And so he began to consider the idea of maybe going into the court of public opinion and telling his story. And after about, you know, a month, like probably five or six months of this back and forth with him, he finally agreed to do a sit-down, and, 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 and that's, that's how it came up. But in, in the process of this, you know, I got to know, I got to know Gacy pretty well, uh, and, um, and his manic tendencies and, and his tendency, you know, he's a classic serial killer, okay? All of, all of the things that he did are just right out of uh, Serial Killer 101. I mean, he's an um, incredible sense of ego, uh, pretty intelligent, not nearly as intelligent as he thinks he is, but his arrogance and his ego doesn't allow him to see any kind of limitations to himself which is ultimately what his downfall is. Um, very meticulous, very organized and, and orderly, which is how he's able to, uh, to keep um, the bodies and keep people from knowing what he did. When he brought down all his materials, he had it all very organized and everything with color tabs and all of the stuff that serial killers typically do. And um, basically just obsessed with himself. Uh, and you could see how he could, um, he could fool a 15 or 16-year-old kid uh, into, into a situation where, where the kid could be in trouble. Uh, beyond that, Probably not, but he knew how to pick his victims, and, uh, and and he was pretty good at what he did for a long time. Did you start to feel like kind of unky by, by <laughs> virtue of associating with this horrific human being? No, not really. I mean, it's part of the job, so you kind of get used to it. I mean, certainly there's part of you that understands how strange this is whenever you're talking to someone like John Wayne Gacy because he can sit there and he'd talk to me about the Cubs. He talked to me about about my bar. He talked to me about everyday things, and all of those conversations are are they're they're normal conversations, but they're not normal because of who you're talking to. So everything like that is sort of um, tilted a little bit. It's a little it's a little strange, and part of your mind is registering that as you're talking, but you're trying to do a job, and and your job is to get this guy to talk and to get his story, and it's a pretty complicated job because this guy's very good at manipulating you. Okay, he's a, he's a very good liar. He's very good at getting his story out. He wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. So you better know that case, and you better know what you're doing. You better go in with a battle plan, and you better be on your game. You better not be overwhelmed by the circumstances or or or, or thrown by the fact that he is who he is, um, because you're not, probably not going to do a very good job. And sometimes he kind of depends on that. Um, depends on you kind of being intimidated by by who he is. 
And so, you know, you just can't allow that to happen. You, do you still talk to uh, killers and cops and victims? In the context of story, in the context of cold case files, yes. Um, I, I I stepped away from cold case files in 2006, but up until then, yeah, I have been talking to a lot of a lot of them. That's part of the job. Who uh, most recently has struck you as as good storytelling story fodder? Mm, you know what? I mean, there's there's a lot. There's a lot. Okay, there's a guy. Um, jeez. A couple kids in, uh, I was out with this cop in Fort Worth and a couple kids in Texas. Um, uh, I'm going out with, 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 with this cop in Fort Worth, just going along with him on kind of like his nightly uh, route. And they roll up to a homicide and um, you go in there and uh, one boy, the, the, the boy has just killed his brother like 50 minutes, an hour earlier. And um, he's still got blood all over him. And he had killed the boy picked up a knife off the kitchen table and put it right to his brother's chest because they were fighting over a piece of chicken. Uh, they had gotten takeout chicken, and um, the one kid had taken the other kid's chicken, and he just picked up a knife and just put it right to his chest. And he's sitting there talking to the police about how, well, he took my chicken last time, and uh, I told him not to take it, as if this is somehow justifying what he did. And then he's talking about the fact that he's going to do uh, the rest of his life in prison as if it's like a high school detention. He's like, yeah, I know, you know, because they're like, well, you know, you're going to either get the death penalty or spend natural life in prison. And he's like, yeah, I know, you know, that, that's really, that, man, I hate that, you know. And you just like, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of look at these kinds of scenes and you're like, violence in some of these areas is such a casual and regular thing for these folks that uh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't seem like it's a big deal to them to end an argument that way. And that's that's very chilling to me. It's more chilling to me, or just as chilling as some serial killer, because um, they're right that cl- they're, they're, they're that close all the time to um, to that kind of violence, uh, just over absolutely nothing. Um, and, and, and and that's one that's one that struck me. Uh, another one I, I remember I interviewed this uh, this guy um, the night before he was going to be executed, and. Uh, those are always strange, uh, strange interviews. Just be- again because of the circumstances. But we went on for a while about um, he. We went on for a while about what method of execution he wanted, uh, because he was just like he wanted to talk about. It. He's like, well, I don't like that electric chair, <laughs> you know. And this is a guy who's gonna who's gonna get the needle in you know six hours, twelve hours, whatever it was. And um, he's like, nope, don't like that. Wouldn't like hanging either. You know, I don't think I'd go for that. He said, you know what, I, I think I'd like a firing squad. He said, if I had a choice, I'd, I'd like a firing squad. He said, it just seems like it's the right thing for me. He said, but, you know, electric chair, uh-uh. You get flames shooting out. And he's, he's going on about all these horror stories he's heard about the, about the electric chair. And um, that was an interesting that was an interesting little uh, tidbit. So you're already well into the second novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any plans? Are, are you still with Cold Case Files? No, no. No, I, I decided, actually, at the beginning of 2006, I decided that 2006 was going to be my last year of Cold Case Files because I had done it for, you know, seven or eight years, and I, I just wanted to try and do something else. And I thought that I would be going off and maybe doing uh, other types of documentaries. That's kind of what I had planned for 2007, not knowing that the Chicago Way was going to come along in the summer and uh, and kind of change those plans. Well, we'll be looking forward to the fall of 2008 yes. when the sequel comes out. Thank you. We've been speaking with Michael Harvey. His new novel is The Chicago Way. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.